Sergeant Brady's Crime Pod is a true crime podcast that may discuss mature topics. Please listen at your own risk. Shortly after 11 a.m. on July 6, 1977, Charles Fesden called the Wilkins Precinct of the Baltimore County Police Department. The father of a 19-year-old high school dropout wanted his son removed from the home. When police arrived, the boy was not there and they instructed Mr. Fesden to call back if his son returned. Another call was made at 11.40 a.m. and Officer Charles Huckaba was the first to arrive at the Lansdowne home. Huckaba spoke with Mr. Fesden who opened the door to the home with a key to find it had been locked with a chain. Furious, he kicked the door open, breaking the lock. At that time, he and Officer Huckaba came face to face with his son, high on PCP and toting an arsenal of weapons. Shots were fired as both men fled the home. Officer Huckaba made it to his patrol car to radio for help, but was shot in the temple before he was able to pull his service revolver. A gun battle that would last over 90 minutes with over 200 shots fired began. Officer John Stem attempted to reach wounded Huckaba by running behind a neighbor's house. A shot fired by the gunman passed through the front and back window of the house, striking Officer Stem in the back. Both officers laid trap and unattended under a hail of bullets until shortly before 1.15 p.m. Officer McGurin of the Specials Weapons and Tactics Team was authorized to take him out. He then fired two shots into the Fesden home. Police moved in as shots ceased from the home. Officer Charles Huckaba was just 26 years old. He was pronounced dead at 2.15 p.m. at St. Agnes Hospital, leaving behind a wife and young son. Officer Huckaba was the second Baltimore County police officer to die in the line of duty. Officer John Stem was 27 when he attempted to aid Officer Huckaba during the shootout. He was shot in the spine and was paralyzed from the waist down. He was awarded the department's Purple Heart and Medal of Honor for bravery. Officer Stem passed away in October of 2000 of complications of paraplegia from the 1977 shooting. So we've established that I watch a lot of Law and Order and on there every few seasons, one of the detectives has either a really hard case or is involved in a shooting or gets shot and they either start drinking really heavily or their captain requires them to go to therapy and they always hate the therapist and they never want to talk to them about their problems. Um, so they try dealing, it, dealing with it on their own and that's usually a season finale because something goes terribly wrong. So how do you and people you know deal with 
tough situations that you come across in the police force? The first, very first time I knew that policing was dangerous and that it's heartbreaking was actually when I came on as a cadet, I think six, six or so months after I came on in 1977 as a cadet, I was over when I was at Essex Precinct. Um, I'd heard on the news before I even went into work on 3 to 11 that there had been a, a terrible multiple shooting with police officers down and never really paid attention to that. But now I was on the job, even though I was a cadet. And I'll never forget, it happened over in Wilkins Precinct and it was ongoing when I went into work. And Essex Precinct, as I talked about it before, was like the fighting 11th. There was always something going on, a lot of a lot of noise, a lot of chatter, um, and just a lot of arrests in and out of that precinct. And I remember walking into the precinct and it was, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, it was like everybody, nobody was saying a word. Everybody was walking, you know, around the precinct and basically in a daze because back then we didn't have cell phones. So everybody had to follow what was either on TV, even precinct level, but our desk officers, I'll never forget that because I worked the desk. They were constantly calling the desk officers, calling Wilkins precinct and getting those desk officers to try to figure out what was, what was going on. And I remember them passing on to us that you had two officers down and I, I, just couldn't even comprehend that because as cadet, I watch police shows, but nobody really dies in police shows because you know they're actors. And I'd only been on the job six months and I was having such a good time. And then they're telling me that's that I have there's two officers that are have been shot and they're laying on the ground. And the worst part was, especially for the other police officers, and I became friends with many of them that were at the scene, is that the suspect, which you, I don't, you have to look up that article, but um, Fessenden, Fessenden um, that year, he had actually had a, a high-powered rifle and had set up the officers for an ambush, and they had no idea what they were walking into. And when the one got out of the car, another officer um, started to walk towards the apartment building. He shot... Um, one of the officers, Huckaba, and he's down, and the other officer made it behind cover, and then responding officers, Officer Stem, he gets shot, and he's down, and the worst part for all these police officers, and I guess if you're in a wartime situation, soldiers would know what I was talking about, they couldn't get to him, because the fight, I mean, any anything that moved, this guy with a high-power rifle, and I can't remember if he's on the second or third floor, of this building was shooting and nobody could get to the officers that were down. So I can't even imagine what was going through their minds and trying to get to them. And I just remember how awful it was. And I, I went to my first police funeral because officer Huckabee died at the scene and officer Stem was paralyzed from the waist down. For the rest of his life and I remember meeting him at he was at headquarters because he still wanted to be a police officer so he worked out of headquarters and he just recently passed away a couple years ago but so 
I realized that this job isn't all fun and games like I thought it was as an 18 year old cadet and horrible things can happen. Um, years later, in 1986, I was a corporal and I don't know how they had gotten my name, but I was asked to be Maryland Shock Trauma, the hospital in you know, Maryland, uh, MIMS as they call it, Shock Trauma decided they realized um, early on that they had doctors and nurses, trauma doctors and nurses and paramedics and obviously police were included that nobody was dealing with them after all the horrible things that they had to deal with, the stress. And of course, shock trauma, you know, they got all the shootings, stabbings, anybody that was injured, mortally injured, and they'd still end up there. All police all go to shock trauma because they're such an exceptional hospital. And, but they get a lot of ugly stuff there and it's constant because it's a hospital. Mm -hmm. And so Marge Epperson Seaboard and a couple other people from the hospital decide they needed to start a critical incident stress debriefing team for doctors and nurses and the people that are on the other side of the civilians that are coming in. Somehow they got my name and the team they put together was all volunteers and I was asked to be on the team as part of the police part. And so as another um, detective on the job, Jim McCauley, I was a corporal. And um, we were the second such team in the country. And we would have been the first, but May, uh, Mayor's governor, Governor William Donald Schaefer was dragging his feet. So I think Virginia um, came up to be the first, came out to be the first one to have a critical instance stress debriefing team, and we were number two. <laughs> I just thought, just realized that, remembered that. But anyway, and we went all over the state, and some some of our team members went out of our state and all over the place because other states realized they needed a team like this. And um, I'm not going to talk about the instance because I can't, but you can just pretty much think, re realize it's the worst of the worst is what we had to deal with because it was always death. and. But you were dealing with first responders. First so responders. Police officers mm -hmm. and um, paramedics, paramedics. Um, dispatchers. They're mm -hmm. part of it too, obviously, and nurses and doctors. And it was a team that we were trained by probably the best of the best psychiatrists, psychologists, and um, on trauma, because that's what we had to deal with, that kind of trauma. It wasn't divorce and those kind of trauma. It was trauma dealing with death and pretty much destruction. And um, so that's calls that I went on. So that team started, like I said, in 1986. 1987, um, when I got promoted to sergeant, I went to Garrison Precinct. And that happened to be where Jim McCauley, the detective that was with me from the beginning for the state team, and we'd had an incident um, that I wasn't involved in, but I had friends involved in it, where it was a domestic and tactical was called in, HNT was called in, hostage negotiation, and the husband ended up I don't remember, I think he killed his wife in front of them before they could even get to him. And mm -hmm. as they brought the hostage negotiators in and um, he killed himself in front of them. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. I mean, and that's not the way it's supposed to go down. Mm -hmm. And it usually never goes down that way. Mm -hmm. And it was just so devastating for everybody involved, the tactical, you know, the HNT, um, the outer perimeters where the patrol officers were, but they originally would have had to call. So it was like, you know, and Jim had talked about it and, and he told me, you know, maybe we need to start our own team for our own police officers. Um, it wouldn't have been as, and our team was only going to be police officers. And we didn't have this huge organization with, you had the state team, we had psychiatrists, psychologists, priests, you know, every thing you can imagine on that team. And um, this was, we were thinking more, we just need a team of police officers, critical incident support team is what we end up calling it. And because we had both been on for a while, and we knew that police officers were not going to be talking. That part of TV shows is true. <laughs> you don't, you, they just, police don't want to talk to what we call shrinks. And because the word got out, because we had departmental psychiatrists, and word would get out that, you know, before you even made it back to the precinct from talking to one, that everybody at the precinct would know what you said. <laughs> Don't know if that was true. I was a cadet, you know, but that's just the way these police were, these old-time police. So we ended up convincing a major on the job who ended up getting promoted to colonel, Don, and um, he thought it was a good idea and he ran it by the chief of police at the time, Neil Behan, and he thought it was a good idea too, but he had a, one other thing that he added to it, which made it a whole nother ball of wax for myself and Jim and how to train police officers because the chief said, oh, you can do this, but you're gonna also have to do with, deal with civilians. <laughs> and it's like, well, what do you mean with civilians? Well, if you know, civilians are involved in a terrible incident, then your team needs to come out and help with that too. So it's like, okay, we were pretty much gonna say okay to anything as long as we could do it. So we put the, wrote it up in paper, you know, wrote it up as called a SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. Um, everybody knew about it or the bosses colonels and all were aware of it but nobody really knew what this was mm -hmm. because there had been nothing like this in the country we were the first one to even police department even put something like this together um because everybody usually had shrinks and that's what they used and um psychiatrists psychologists so we wrote it up and um my colonel told me that it was on paper but it wasn't official by any means and that I had to go to in-service training and talk to the lieutenants. And the way in-service training goes is they divide sergeants, you know, sergeants go, sometimes sergeant corporals, but the lieutenants were all by themselves and then patrol officers get mixed up with other patrol officers. But the lieutenants, because this colonel knew that we had to sell this to these lieutenants because they run the shift. I mean, some of them ran the precincts, but they definitely run the shift. Mm -hmm. So no matter if this was going to work, then I had to go and had get talk, do this talk to these lieutenants in in-service training to convince them otherwise it would never get off the ground. Because mm -hmm. my only requirement that I asked my colonel is that I did not want this to be something that had to be called, like H&T was automatic on hostage situations, needless to say. TAC was an automatic. I wanted my unit to only be called by a supervisor 
because a supervisor felt we were needed. Mm -hmm. Because if we just responded for everything, it wouldn't be that we were even accepted and would they even listen? Because right. cops we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. You so, want them to want you. Yes, they would have to need us and want us, otherwise it would never get off the ground. Because mm -hmm. it was totally new, nobody even heard of such a thing. Mm -hmm. And they're men, so you have to make it think it's their idea. 99.9% .9 <laughs> men, which, which takes me to the training. So I show up at the academy for the in-service, you know, that I'm supposed to do in-service training and tell these group of lieutenants what was coming down the pike, something else that they were going to have to do that they probably had, would definitely not have any interest in. And I'll never forget the sergeant that he was one of the academy instructors and he came out of the room and he said to me, oh my God, Rose, I am so sorry that you have to go in front of these animals. And I was like, what? And he said, oh my God, the last people that came in for, to teach on something, it's like they were throwing paper airplanes at them. They were reading behind newspapers. They were just so ignorant. And he said, I am so sorry that I have to send you into them. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh, great. This is lovely. And they're not even going to trust me. At that time, in 1986, a lot of these lieutenants were from the military. They had come out of the military and gone right into the police department. Mm -hmm. Most of them were much older than me. I mean, and it was all men. I don't even remember if we had a lieutenant at that point, female lieutenant, Kim Ward would have been one of the ones, but I don't remember even at that time if there was. If there was, I don't remember her. <laughs> All I remember is walking into this room. And the sergeant said, this is Sergeant Rose Miller. And out the door he ran. And it's like, it was like dead silence. And have you ever tried to talk in front of, there was like 50 people, 50 or 60, because they made the lieutenants all come at the same time because they could fit them in one room. So it was like, I don't know, 50 or 60 lieutenants. It was all the lieutenants from the department. And it was like dead silence. And they're all <laughs> looking at me. So I'm looking around the room and I realize that I know most of these men and they've known me since I was a cadet. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm just going to go, go with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell them why. And I, I brought up that incident. I brought up other incidents over the years that had happened. And I mean, some of the incidents I would say is like, you know, it's like men aren't allowed to cry and police definitely aren't allowed to cry. Mm -hmm. I said, but there's some times when, you know, you get the call of a child that they can't find, you know, a, a toddler, and the officers get the call, your officers will get the call, and the next thing you know, and your supervisors are responding, and maybe you, and you find the child in a pool, the neighbor's pool drowned. Mm -hmm. And the family, the parents are begging you, because you're the police and you can do anything, to bring this child back to life. Mm -hmm. There's some things that are just hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it's like, my unit is going to be all police officers. I'm the only patrol officers. And they're all volunteers. And they're all going to be trained by the state team that I've been on, you know, for the last year, who are excellent people. And I showed them a video. Did I have that video then? I showed them a video that I had that is, was a horrendous, it was an officer from some other department that he was sitting in his patrol car 
minding his own business, and a guy who hated police came up with a shotgun and shot him in the face. Mm -hmm. Totally destroyed this officer's face. He survived. They got him to whatever shock trauma, but his face was basically something you would see in a horror show. Mm -hmm. And he talked about it. It was it was about him, and there was, I think, a couple other incidents, different officers. And he talked about, you know, what had happened to him and the support he got from fellow police officers. So I said to all these hardened lieutenants, and you could have heard a pin drop the whole time I talked. Not one of them <laughs> threw an airplane paper airplane at me. No one was, like, hiding behind a newspaper. They were all listening to me. And I said... I, and I told him, I was up front and honest. I said, I have no idea if this is going to work. I, I have no idea. But it's time to try. And I said, it's all police officers on my team. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm just hoping it will, and I think we're needed. So I had one question from the homicide lieutenant, who happened to be my sergeant when I was at Wilkins Precinct when I was in patrol. And he had a, he had a good question. And... Um, the rest of them just said, didn't really say a whole lot of anything. So I said, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> I left. I don't even know if it was a month later. I'm at home and the phone rings. And at this point, I'm not on call. I'm not in detectives yet. I don't even know how communications, which is the 911 center, I don't even know how this corporal got my phone number mm -hmm. but I answered the phone it was like two in the morning and you have to know this corporate talks like this corporal McClure and he says is is this sergeant Rose uh I said yeah <laughs> okay well lieutenant so-and-so is requesting you to go to Essex precinct and I'm like I work garrison precinct and I'm thinking <laughs> what are you talking about and I said Okay, why does he want me to go there? We've had an officer shot. And he said he wants crisis team. He wants Sergeant Rose. Call Sergeant Rose. She'll know what I'm talking about. We need her down here. We need her now. Well, you know, you've, you and I have talked about this before, and I've said sometimes things are just meant to be. It's just fate or whatever. That was my first call. We weren't even official. And it was a lieutenant, one of these hard-nosed lieutenant in in-service mm -hmm. training that knew me when I was a cadet at that precinct. So he had known me for, you know, all these years. And he would have been the last person that ever called a team like mine. Mm -hmm. And his officer got shot in the line in the stomach, and it didn't look good because it went up underneath. A guy pulled, I think it was a forty-five, and it went up, and he shot the officer underneath his vest. So you can imagine all the organ, and he was sent to shock trauma, and thank God we have shock trauma because they saved his life, and he ended up finishing his career. But that was our first call, and even though we weren't even official, I called Jim McCauley, and I called one of the officers that was on my team that worked that precinct. I thought he'll be a good one to call because I had their, their numbers, and both of them I told, you know, we're heading, I'm heading down to Essex Precinct, this is what happened. And of course, I had to tell Noel who the officer was because he didn't even know mm -hmm. that it had happened. And I said, I can tell you right now, we might not get paid <laughs> and we might get in a lot of trouble, but I'm going because this lieutenant needs us down there. Mm -hmm. And it totally, I mean, we weren't even on the, we weren't even official yet, but we responded and we, we you know, we took care of that precinct and those officers and never looked back. What's going on? Let your mother know. Your mother wants to know.
she's an inquiring mind. Mind. Is it mine or mind? <laughs> Call when you get service. See you.